0: Listening audience, thanks again for downloading Noggin Notes. I am Jake Wiscursion, I'm the host, and today we have another delightful interview for you, this time with Cy Medi M D. That's spelled S-A-I. New name, M-E-D-I. Cy and I met on Twitter through uh, the you know debacle that was the COVID response, and we connected and became friends, and now we talk all the time about various things. He's a doc in Colorado. And he's he's really bright. He's really well-read and knowledgeable on a number of subjects that you'll see throughout the course of the interview. We start by talking about pharmaceuticals that are advertised to us through our televisions that uh, in their ads alone, they openly state that they don't know what the drug does, which is crazy to me. Um, so I texted him and I was like, "Hey, bro, you're not gonna, you're not going to believe this." And he's like, "Not only do I believe it, but um, check out this other stuff." Um, so we talked about that and how appalled we are that they're just shoving drugs down our face just to make money, even though they don't really know what to do or how to do it, and they use lay terminology to paper over very specific medical concepts. And in fact, sometimes they can do more harm than good despite however you know many celebrities they trot in front of us so we started with that but then we breached uh, we branched into a number of other topics including um you know parenting and uh you know societal matters and uh how medicine and and mental health overlap and all sorts of stuff. So I think you're going to find the interview really good. I know I did. I love Sai. I love picking his brain on various things. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, through text message and whatnot. We're both dads of small children, so we got that in common too. And so it just uh, just makes for a nice friendship and I, and I was glad to be able to share his knowledge on here. So I will give you now my interview with Sai Medi and um, appreciate you continuing to listen. And in the meantime, if you or someone you know needs a free and anonymous mental health screening, please check it out at wtta.org. That's walkthetalkamerica.org. And you can get a free and anonymous mental health screening there, or go to the zephyrwellness.org website, and you can also uh, click on the screenings link, and it'll take you to the same screenings. But it's a great way to tune in and check on yourself. So. Thanks for doing that and thanks for listening and thanks for sharing as always. It's always very humbling to know that people listen to what we have to say here. Without further delay, here's my interview with Dr. Cy Medi. Enjoy. Welcome back listening audience. Thank you for once again downloading our content. We love you listeners sharing this around so that other people can learn what we're discussing. And today I am joined by Dr. Cy Medi, who is it? you hospitalist? Is that what you're called? Yeah. Hospitalist. Yes. And you're in uh, the Denver region somewhere, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you may have to step away if you get paged by the ER to attend to whatever they have going on, but I wanted to have you on the show for a really long time. Uh, we met over Twitter uh, which I have uh, you and I have both taken a hiatus from and maybe we'll be back maybe we won't but um, we can get into that later but uh, Twitter I found has been I found a, a way to make it edifying which was cool it took me a long time but uh, you are one of those fruits of that labor and I'm really glad to have met you and gotten to know you and we correspond pretty regularly about lots of things not just medical care and mental health stuff but societal things and culture and politics and whatnot. But uh, the the reason that we wanted to do this like now is because I saw an ad on TV while I was watching the Giants game, San Francisco Giants last night for something called Qu- Quivivic, I think is how they pronounce it. It's Q-U-V-I-V-I-Q. And It had actor Tay Diggs talking about how he has, you know, trouble sleeping. And he's like, I tried all the conventional methods like listening to white noise and counting sheep, and I hated them. So I took a pill. And then it goes to this uh, lady wearing a white coat and pretending to be a doctor saying something to the effect of Quivivic is thought to uh, attack overactive. Uh, wake signals or something equally generic I was like what and it set off all my my alarms so I texted you about that and you uh, cocked an eyebrow suspiciously so t- tell me tell me why this is a problematic in
1: your view Yeah I think so I don't actually know how to pronounce this quevy IQ but the actual compound name is Doritorexant and this is basically a neuropeptide it targets a neuropeptide that is in the hypothalamus and this peptide is implicated in sleep in energy in metabolism appetite and narcolepsy like you know they have found that mice lacking this peptide uh, are narcoleptic like they just literally will be doing one thing running around or something and then they just keel over and fall asleep um and so naturally it's a great thing to target, to get to, to you know, to turn it into a compound and give it to people, right?
0: (laughs) That's so wild. And this is why I love picking your brain because seeing you exchange information with some of the other, uh, doctor folks that we've met on Twitter, I know that you have a head full of well-read literature and research that's just available at the tips of your uh, fingers. Uh, this was not one of those things you had to look this up, but, uh, I knew that you would be, efficient and proficient in doing so. But so help us understand here. So a neuropeptide does what? And then beyond that, this particular neuropeptide that, uh, relates to all those things is if it's lacking, you get narcolepsy. So I'm assuming that medicine tries to make it turn off or something. Help us understand how that works.
1: So this medicine blocks where this peptide acts on the brain. Uh, And so This And, you know, in the brain, there's no such thing as a single set of neurons or peptides or a single pathway for like, this one is for wake, this one is for appetite, this one is for energy, and you could just single each and every one of these pathways out. They always occur together because if you think about how an organism functions, you know, if you're like a hunter-gatherer or something, um, when it's time to wake up, when the sun comes up. You can't just wake up and then also not have any energy, muscle tone, appetite, or all these other things that are important. And so these peptides always do like 12 different things in the brain because that's that's how they were designed mm-hmm. to do. And so one of those things happens to be increasing neural activity to you know make you more awake and alert and um, make you want to converse and and do the things you need to do to survive as, a, as an organism, right? And so it makes perfect sense that, you know, the peptide orexin uh, goes to the hypothalamus and does all of these things, because this is something, all of these things are necessary for when you wake up. And so the drug companies are like, well, people can't sleep. So we'll just take a hatchet and just target this wide reaching, this extremely active peptide that does like 12 things. But we'll do it to make them sleep, and so they, you know, this compound, Doritorexant basically blocks um, uh, uh, orexin and peptide. And there's like two two different receptors. We don't have to get into the, the weeds, but it blocks it, so it can help people sleep. And you just have to realize, like, my God, you know, what could go wrong if you're disrupting something that's implicated in adipose tissue? appetite, energy expenditure, muscle tone, and you're using it just to get insomniacs with probably very poor sleep habits to go to sleep, you know, what else could go wrong? And you know what happened with ambient, right? All you know, sleepwalking and uh, hypnopompic hallucinations and uh, you know other things, talking in their sleep and acting out, especially when they mix it with alcohol. But, you know, um, and so we've already kind of been through this. This is just the nth iteration pharmaceutical companies coming up with these insane compounds that, um, that target brain areas that are, that, you know, that do multiple, multiple things, but they target it for one specific thing that they could market, get FDA approval for, and then, you know, sell it to the masses.
0: Let's talk about some of those things. Um, I know that I, I myself have encountered uh, patients who, had ambient issues and they they've went into full-blown psychosis in some states and uh they ended up having to get off it and it was very hard for them to get off of it and it was almost like trying to detox from a uh like a, a hard drugs like um oh geez I, i'm totally benzodiazepines or something it was, it was like that challenging um so to me that stuff's kind of kind of like poison um like putting xanax and a, and a child it's like you just don't do that now we're seeing it with zoloft and children too actually as it turns out uh it's just dangerous to put drugs in your body right regardless of what they're for because you don't know the ripple effect and somebody once told me that prescribing medicine is as unique to the individual as individuals are so there is no blanket statement that you know ibuprofen will do this for you it's like well it, it in large it will probably do whatever you promise you know attack your headache or whatever you know cause the swelling and inflammation to go down. But because individuals are so unique and their bone body chemistries are so unique, then we really, every, every prescription is an experiment on a on a person. So um, let's talk about what you could foresee if this takes, takes root and people start prescribing this, say in an outpatient setting or a primary care setting uh, for people who maybe don't necessarily need it um, or even for those who do, what are some of the potential side effects here?
1: Well, that's just it. I mean, you you can't know with just what the, you know, the initial studies from what the drug companies, you know, report very often, even though they'll they'll do all the, you know, FDA regulatory things they need to do. They'll follow these patients out some months, but do you really think they have the budget or the will to be like, let's put some patients on this and other patients, you know, just let them use melatonin or something and let's follow them for 10 years, you know, yeah. they're not going to do that, No. Nope. You know? And as we've noticed with these other drugs, like benzodiazepines, particularly, they act on the GABA receptor, and this receptor is for getting the brain to you know it slows neural activity. But there's also other aspects of it which are a little bit worrisome. Uh, it could increase intracellular calcium in the neurons, and what that could you know it's been thought of as perhaps a mildly toxic thing when whenever calcium goes into the cell. And so you don't want to overdo it. The brain has natural sort of uh, ways to prevent this on a wide scale. But when you're using sedatives like this, it's actually neurotoxic. That was the, I guess, pre-experimental theoretical um, bench side hypothesis. And lo and behold, uh, now studies have shown that after like 10 or 20 years, whatever benzodiazepine use, intermittent benzodiazepine use is, is basically the same as being an alcoholic. You know, so you see brain atrophy, you see shrinkage, Uh, you see early dementia being linked to that. Hmm. You know, in fact, early dementia is also linked to Benadryl use, which is an anticholinergic and also seems to slow brain activity. You know, the first generation antihistamines, more so than the other ones, but regardless. And so when you introduce something that acts on a very deep brain structure that's supposed to do like 12 things, and you do it for a decade, obviously it's going to cause some harms down the road, right? Now, what those are, we'll see. But I think we can extrapolate. It's probably going to be very similar to what we're seeing with, uh, you know, Ambien and also just Adderall. Uh, maybe a different flavor of some dementia that's you know linked to it or something rather. But you know, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious what's going to happen to the brain if you use these compounds for like a decade or more.
0: And and if I'm going to be the you know the pro drug company pushbacker, I would say, well, nobody's going to take these for a decade, right? We, we just meet them for PRN use. When you can't sleep, you just pop one of these pills. Uh, but that's not the reality, I'm guessing. The reality is this is like an addiction for profit type of industry where they need people to continue using this stuff because if you use it intermittently, it's, it doesn't generate money for them. But yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I want to I say something else, but go ahead. Answer that first. I
1: mean, if you're you a drug rep and that's your, if you're talking to a group of investors and you're telling them that you spent a billion dollars developing this thing, but hey, don't worry, you know, it's just going to be a small number of patients using it sporadically. We're not going to make much money. It's just going to help us small, you know, patient population shift workers or whatever. The investors would say, I want my money back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what are you doing? Your, your obligation is to move product and drive revenue and the way you do that is you capture as big a market as possible for as long as possible and so it's just i mean it's just a fiduciary obligation on their part they have every incentive to cast a very wide net push for off label use propagandize physicians to you know prescribe it liberally maybe even for Age range is not specifically stated in the FDA. But lots of drugs are used off label. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, as far as an investors concerned, if, you, if you're moving product, you're moving product. And so, I mean, that's, that's just a lie. Yeah, <laughs> if, if the drug reps are telling me that.
0: Yeah, well, and, and not to freak everybody out. I mean, if you're taking antihistamines for your allergies, like I presently am, literally today, you're not going to shrink your brain. It's if you continuously take them all the time for many years, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, people have, I don't exactly know the studies that they have to look back, but I think it was like 60-year-olds or whatever that were chronically on Benadryl, Atarax, um, and they did have some trend towards dementia, which makes sense. I mean, I see, it's one of those things where, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was Andrew Huberman, and he said something to the effect of, you know, alcohol is a temporary poison, obviously. Sure. You, You see it. You know, people slur their speech. They're not thinking clearly. Their judgment is, it's doing something to the brain acutely. And so he's like, how people could then be like, well, using it every day, drinking alcohol every day for like decades, that's not bad. That's not a, poor it's a negligible poison, even though acutely it is. It's just a non sequitur. It doesn't follow logically. And that's the same thing with it. You know, antihistamines. Particularly in older individuals, I see a lot of patients come in on multiple anticholinergic medications and, um, classically their symptoms are, um, I'm having double vision. My thoughts are hazy. I can't walk straight. Wow. Am I having a stroke? And I'll be like, okay, let's look at your med list. More often than not, I'll, I'll find like amitriptyline, Benadryl, um, you know, something for urinary retention. And I'm just like, okay, we need to take some of these off. And so. Yes, I think if you're gonna use it intermittently for allergies and you know, that's probably fine. But there are people that just self-medicate with Benadryl because of anxiety or insomnia. A lot of people just like they're like, Oh, Benadryl, it's over the counter, it's not bad. <laughs> Let me just drink a beer and pop 25 of Benadryl and go to That's that's a very bad habit.
0: Okay. So I, I think I was misunderstanding the the long term use. People are just using it for inappropriate symptom presentation. So if their symptom is can't sleep, they're taking Benadryl because it tires you out and winds you down. Um It's not because they're allergic to everything all year round.
1: No, well, that's too. So when when you, it's interesting because people assume that if you use the drug for its intended thing, that there are no bad, the side effects are less. Like as if like the drug's energy is only used up to treat the allergies. That's not true at all. So even if you are using it, even if you are using it for allergies yearly, I think the data holds.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why I have crazy dreams whenever I take Nyquil. Right? If I get, I mean, and I'm I'm pretty. (laughs) I'm pretty, I'm not going to say I'm anti-drug, but I'm I'm as close to clean, oh. non-interfering living as I can get, uh, so things have to get pretty bad before I even take ibuprofen or Tylenol for um, you know, inflammation, but when I do, I, I, I've got to believe that because I don't have a tolerance built up, that the potency is much greater, so I take that swig of NyQuil, and man, not only do I go out like a light, I have crazy dreams, and I sleep like a rock, <laughs> so maybe there's nothing to that. No
1: idea.
0: I had no idea you were into
1: lean. But, you know, you do, you know.
0: <laughs> there's a term for that, huh?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Lean purple drink. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Drink of choice among Houston rappers. I think it's like NyQuil and they'll drop a Jolly Rancher in it and then like put ice in it and swish it up and
0: Oh, I just drink that. Up. So that's like, uh, is that what three six talks about when they're sipping on some scissor?
1: Mm-hmm, yep. Scissor lean purple lean. drink. All right. I figured it
0: was mixed with something like something else, like an actual liquor, like MD 2020 or. Oh, they'll
1: they'll do that too. And that's a whole. Crazy.
0: Yeah. I might have to try that this evening. Maybe maybe I'll mix it with some Sambuca because they're sort of similar in flavors or something. Don't condone
1: this, Jake. I must say this as a doctor.
0: Of course you do. Neither do I as a mental health practitioner. Um, We're kidding everyone. My licensing board. I'm joking. This is humor. So. Back to the whole pharma push thing, you and I have gone rounds about with other people around the vaccination schedules and so forth, and who's pushing what and how people like Peter Hotez refused to come on Joe Rogan and you know discuss it in, in public, but he's willing to snipe privately. Um, it seems pretty clear now what the agenda was, and it was to make money, right? In in the face mm-hmm. of COVID, how do we yeah. as responsible people in the profession advocate? responsible intervention strategies now that public health broadly and some of the other pillars of our society, uh, medicine, law, uh, science, I guess, in general, have been eroded to the degree that people just don't know what to trust anymore. How, how do we broadly and collectively attack that? I know how we can do it individually in our own offices, but what, what are your thoughts?
1: I think... I, mean, I think people should go back to their roots and understand that there are no solutions. There are only trade offs. You know, Thomas Sowell said that. And medicine is an excellent case study as to why that's true. And I mean, I consider myself a medical conservative in the sense that listen, we are not omniscient, tinkering, technocratic gods that can like do stuff to the body and and mold our destiny with pure external means medications and interventions what we're really doing in medicine is we're using chainsaws to fix like a small piece of something in your fence we're using blow torches to like sterilize a two by two foot area you know and we're, we don't have the means to do it on such a granular level where you're gonna magically have no side effects. You're only going to have all the good effects, and then side effects are if they're there, they're negligible. and we know enough about what we're doing where we can extrapolate this out 10 years without studies and assure people that this is okay. And so we're using really, really big guns. You know we're using it's it's almost like using a shotgun to try to kill a fly, you know. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage, and so I think that should be the operative norm of when you're talking about some of these things. And anytime a new medication or drug comes out, we should approach it with skepticism. You know, uh, if you think about medicine in terms of um, you know public health uh, interventions that have increased life expectancy and decreased um, maternal mortality, childhood mortality. They they literally fall into like two or three big buckets. One of them is hygiene, best practices, hand washing, healthcare, preventing like mm-hmm. uh, using gloves, preventing mixing up blood and just basic, basic stuff, mm-hmm. you know, which has decreased surgical mortality 20 fold or something. The other one is uh, antibiotics. You know, there's a lot of resistance, but like antibiotics is it's one of those things where you don't need to study. Like, someone is coming in dying of sepsis or something. You're gonna give antibiotics. You've got, and you see the results before your eyes. They're dying one minute, but a few hours they're they're stable. Within a few days, they're you know almost good to go home. And so, and then the third thing is nutrition and childhood um, immunizations and just sort of really reeling in. Um, nutrition and and, and and so forth to make sure that the child survives to age five or whatever. Once they're right. age five or so forth, they're less susceptible to diseases, you know, they can handle viral infections better. And they're just, at that point, they're basically home free. Hmm. Much of human history is surviving the age five, but that's been a challenge, right? Right. Um, for, you know, mostly nutrition. So, so those are the things. And when I say childhood immunizations, um, I mean, you know, in the 80s, the big ones like diphtheria. MMR yeah. yeah yeah MMR you know we don't, we don't have to go full RFK junior on this right. but there's not not all vaccines are created equal some have clear benefits and some are a little bit sketchy you know the hep B at birth you know I, I don't there's no good reason to give a child that was just born an immunization like when they should be bonding with their mother that there's no rush to give the hep B at birth so I think vaccinologists have um denervated themselves by really pushing too hard and becoming extremely rigid with the schedules and so forth, not giving parents a choice and not listening to them. And it's actually caused a decrease in vaccine uptake. And that's obviously that's understandable. That's just human nature. Right. Hmm. And so I think, so those are the three buckets that have really increased life expectancy. And then there's, that's like tier one. Tier two is like, I'm having an appendix burst and I need surgery. Or um, you know, I, I might need a kidney transplant. You know, those are like surgical, and so those are obviously things that we want. We want to keep, but they're not without risk. You know, because you're going into the hospital, you're getting operated on. There's medication. You're exposed to all these other you know, alternatives. So there's less of a trade-off in those because obviously the risks for not doing a you know, taking out the appendix is is um, bad. You could pop. You could die. But you're actually going, you're going under, you're going under surgery, right? And so um, there's a risk there. And then after that, you get a whole class of medical interventions that are almost to the point where you really have to dig deep into the data and ask, what is the risk benefit here? Like even something as anodyne and mundane as statins, mm-hmm. like, look, the statin, oh, it's widely prescribed, it's it's safe, and, you know, it's, it's good for heart attack patients and, I think Dr. Asim Malhotra has a really good bit on this, and he was recently on Joe Rogan, but he basically said something to the effect that, well, it turns out statins cause you know, various side effects, including central nervous system and you know, muscle pain. And post hoc market analysis seemed to show that you'd have to treat like... Um, guessing here, don't quote me on the numbers, so something like 100 patients or something like that to, to you know prevent one heart attack. And when they dug deeper into the data, they were like, wow, this data, is, it's really bad. Outside of um, using a statin right when a person has a heart attack because it has a mild anti-inflammatory effect, there isn't any convincing data to show that these people should be on statin therapy for life. And so something that was like baked into the medical guidelines of like, hey, you know, if this is something everybody does, clearly there's a lot of data. Why would you even question this? You know, when you when you can credibly question stuff like that, it does make you sort of question everything. And we should question everything because after analysis, if you if, if you do question something and it it turns out it is useful. It's something we should keep and the benefits outweigh the cost. And that's good, you know. So I think regarding, I think your, your initial question was mRNA vaccines and, and um, the harm they cause, and the profit motive. I, motive. I think the, the skeptics were presenting very valid reasons from the start. They were saying, you're using this platform, mRNA, to, to um, code for one spike protein. And this spike protein is from the Wuhan WA1 strain that we got from the initial, I guess, ancestor strain. And we're going to use that to vaccinate against we're going to, against this virus. And we're going to do it basically indefinitely, knowing that coronaviruses, SARS coronaviruses mutate. Also, it's kind of a novel platform because never have we just used a single protein successfully to vaccinate against the virus. You usually have to use a whole virus or you have to use an adjuvant you have to provoke a stronger immune response additionally they were also saying you know you're bypassing mucosal immunity you know so you're doing something a little bit artificial in the sense that you're giving it in the blood to make these antibodies whereas in the natural course of things when a virus infects you you it, it it's muc- membranes, you know, when someone coughs on you, it doesn't go straight to your bloodstream COVID virus. It goes to your nose or your throat or something like that. And that's where the immune system is supposed to start off the cascade, but we're kind of bypassing that. And we're using a single protein to make antibodies in the blood. Obviously it's not going to stop spread. You're not going to have IgA mucosal immunity. And so these arguments were out there like March, 2020, they were all out there and these people were silenced, you know? So um, how do we not make the same mistake? Is basically I, what it boils down to is probably action bias. You know, so basically, you don't know what's going on. Things are fast moving. There's a camp that says because it's an emergency and you know things are happening fast, we have to make all these decisions now. And there's no time to think. But what's actually true is that because things are happening fast and we're prone to be making very haphazard decisions now is absolutely the time to think and it's time well spent to think through something even though it appears to be this so-called emergency and and uh you know there could be some cost to not acting but there's probably a much greater cost to acting rashly and going down a, a terrible, travel path, which is exactly what happened. So I think, yeah, I mean, you know, as a if you if you want to be a medical conservative, you should stop. You should not act. You should think. You should question, and be ready to accept the costs of "quote unquote" delaying, knowing that, you know, you'll be making better decisions down the road if later.
0: You, I'm really glad you segued because I'm starting to see this in many other areas. It's the the do something. Uh, even there was a uh, a little teaser line on the um, Dan Patrick show some time ago where they they kind of mocked themselves and said fast and wrong is still fast, and they laughed at it. You know regarding journalism and coverage of things that you know you report immediately as soon as the thing hits, don't investigate, and then later you can issue the retraction that nobody reads. So we're seeing it in journalism news coverage. We're seeing it in policy legislation. And my particular bailiwick is firearms and you know, the, the red flag laws, like we must do something. There are gun deaths. Well, what's the thing that they do? They pass these red flag laws that say in a time of crisis, uh, take the person's guns. Uh, what about care? No, 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 no. Just take the person's guns. And now we're seeing it in the trans affirming care, which is slowly leaking into yeah. all affirming care, which is act, act rapidly now and get the kids on puberty blockers and cut off healthy body parts because they might kill themselves. And there's no, there's no discipline or judiciousness or patience exercised. And I'm over here going, Well, hold on a second. We we probably need to slow this down, but I mean you're you're big into cultural lenses of things. And from my check me on this if you think I'm I'm off kilter, but from my perspective, it seems that the instant gratification culture in the West broadly, but America specifically, has gripped us in such a way that we have lost distress tolerance overall that's now yeah. turned into a lack of patience. And we want things not only immediate, but customized. And with immediate success, and so we don't we don't know how to tolerate when things don't work the way that they're promised, or they don't work at all, uh, or even worse, they do harm, and then we don't know how to reconcile that because letting go of our preconceived notions is a threat to the ego, and lots of us aren't very good at ego dissolution, so we end up seeing people double down and double down again on these narratives and the rhetoric because they themselves are uncomfortable changing their minds, and I I don't know how to st- Stem that tide. Uh, I know that it's probably come through technology largely, and I don't know when it started. Maybe, maybe with the, the microwave oven or the VCR or something, and it's just accelerated from there. Where now I don't even have to go to the library to flip through the card catalog to find things. I can just Google it, right? Um, don't have to go to the grocery store and buy my own groceries. I can have Amazon deliver it to my doorstep. So, I don't know how we we go, re- get a return to patience and the wait and see with lowest level of intrusiveness on things like affirming care and things like even journalistic integrity. Cause everybody seems to be a race to be the first to get the clicks, to get the eyeballs, which then of course drives revenue. Um, I don't know. What do what you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I was listening to a talk by, I don't know if you know, Camille. Paglian.
0: Yeah. yeah. From the, uh, Oh, I, I always thought you were thinking of uh, Camille from the uh, fifth column podcast
1: no no. no she's an the, the old author school. yeah 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 she's an old school feminist I think she's based in the UK but um, one of the things that she said was uh, late stage civilizations have uh, there's a destruction of norms and she has seen she was like well if you look at the Romans the post-classical Greeks you know a, lo- a lot of what was happening was a complete destruction of norms and a deconstructionist, Runaway deconstruction, end-stage deconstruction, which leads to the the destruction of the family unit. Mm -hmm. Um, Gender norms are obliterated and even inverted. Um, The sort of relationship between teacher and student is turned on its head. What you're seeing with uh, colleges where the students are basically dictating the curriculum, you know, professors have to follow along. And so it seems to be a late-stage deconstruction of what society and, and your civilization is. And, you know, I think probably, you know, what happens with, you know, decadence. Now, decadence is you know, a term that's thrown around a lot. I know people like Ross that have a more refined definition of it, but I mean, I think there's two sides of decadence. Um, decadence is you are arrogant. You know how stuff is going to go down. You can predict the future to some extent, and you can navigate appropriately. Therefore, you don't need to feel discomfort. You can bypass it. You can be hedonistic because you're past the toiling of pre-modern humans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sit around and, you know, have an orgy with Nero and his psychopaths drink wine while the plebs toil. And that's, that's the flip side of this kind of runaway deconstructionism that's kind of taking hold in many, you know, that has taken hold in many societies. And when something like that happens, it's really, really hard to bring people back with classical arguments and, and normal logic because they've constructed it. There's no bedrock for that, right? You can't even say something so simple as, my God, you know, you wanna do surgeries and cross sex hormones on like 14 year olds. We've never done this before. You know, in the eighties, surely there were some trans people, but you know, what were these like trans suicides? You know, uh, if we didn't, I mean, we didn't do any of these treat- treatments then. So what happened to those children? Why is there a sudden uptick? What's causing this? We should look into that. Is it a societal contagion or is it something in the water? Like, let's let's stop and think. And deconstructionists will say, well, oh, that doesn't matter. We've been through that phase. And now, we'll, you know, we're at the point of stepping back from society So we're not of it. So we can deconstruct it. We can sidestep all of these trends and do what we want. And I see, you know, in the United States, you have, you have the assault on the family unit, you know, and it's not just a heritage foundation talking point you. You have the state saying um, under certain instances, they could literally emancipate your child legally and have them make their own decisions teachers at, at school boards are saying they keep secrets from their parents regarding gender and sexual mores and all, all these other things. Um, on top of that, you have a destruction of meritocracy. You have an inversion of teacher-student in colleges, and you have gender switching. You know, And so, in such an environment as that, there is no logic. You can't use the pre you know you can't use the classical framework at all i don't really know how to stop it i mean you know societies have to weather it you know they they either survive or they don't Um, but i think that's what's happening and it kind of follows art because if you look at art there's like there's like four stages of like a genre there's like the exploratory stage like you just invented a new genre like the film noir like oh my or a western like this is cool like This is a movie where you're cowboys, you're riding around and you're shooting each other. And then there's like the golden age, you know, of the genre where it's just like, wow. Um, This is like the John Wayne. This is like the Clint Eastwood, the the classic, you know, tombstone. And then after that, you get sort of a deconstruction of the the narrative in the genre. And you get these um, narratives like No Country for Old Man, which is like, pretty postmodern. it's like it's a western themed thing but it actually analyzes itself in a weird self-conscious way where it's not a classic western where you have some good guys and bad guys and then you know classical values prevail like let's be brave and stick together even though some of us might get shot at because we can't let this fucking shit stand in our town right uh you don't have that you have like oh the world is chaotic and messy and dangerous and we can, the best we can do is observe it and and uh, that's just it. it, it it's terrible. It's a little bit nihilistic. At the end of that, you have naked parody, like horrible parody to the point where it's like not even, I mean, you deconstructed it and you're just making fun of it. And I think a good example of this is Marvel movies today, you know? Right. And we're just like, it used to take itself seriously. And People were like, oh, it's, it's, these are superhero movies. Why are we taking this seriously? We've had a golden age. Let's break it down a little bit. Let's make Thor fat and dumb in one of the films. And in later films, it's just, like, the guy from, um, what's that guy's name? Samuel L. Jackson character. He loses his eye. Nick Fury. Nick Fury loses his eye to a cat. That's the, I'm just, like, you're just, like, making fun of it at this point, which, and sometimes in art it's okay, but it mirrors what's happening in society Mm -hmm. and a little bit dangerous because the things that have paid dividends for people for like 70 years meritocracy rule of law listen to your professors maybe you don't agree but at least listen first incorporate the data listen to these viewpoints and then argue back go out there and build something you know these are the things that have built western civilization and we are living off of these dividends and so now there's a group of people that want to destroy that you know so it's not going to and well, I'm, I'm hoping you can weather it. There's a backlash and that we're able to uh, reclaim these institutions. But I mean, the broad trends worry me a lot, you know.
0: I think this is where studying psychology comes in really handy, because, especially Jungian form analytic psychology, because it deals with archetypes that are common across history uh, and across cultures, irrespective of how old they are, or new they are, or where they live. And the certain common binding themes resonate so profoundly with humans one to the next that I got to believe that even we'll take AI, for example, and I know there's a lot written about AI lately and everybody has extreme opinions about it. But when we see it applied to things like art and music, literature, because you can go to chat GPT and just um, write up a your own children's book and it's going to be terrible, but uh, boy, it'll sell, right? I think what'll happen is humans at their core at their essence their capital s self will crave a return to things that matter that bind us together because we will get tired of the artifice though the 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 synthetic doesn't i don't think it promotes holistic healing it doesn't promote happiness it doesn't promote uh connectiveness in the tribe What it does is it promotes, like you said, hedonism and and nihilism where I'm just feeding myself for the sake of instant gratification. And eventually that wears out. Now, whether or not we expire because we all just decide that marriage is a stupid institution that is archaic and we don't need it anymore and now we've mocked it and ridiculed it and nobody's getting married and having children anymore and that's how the evolution ceases for the people who believe in that kind of thing we wait a couple generations and those people who believe that stuff are gone because they literally didn't reproduce or if maybe new creation arrives out of the, you know, the, the fatigue of the artificial, I think, I think that you paint an optimistic picture. I don't know if you intended to, but I'm a little more uplifted now because I was, I I think I was getting a little blackpilled seeing all the doom and gloom float through Twitter, which is why we have to step away. But the idea is that we will know deep down what is good, what is right, what is true, what is anchored. And I think that's where people like you and I can have a sober conversation with the patients right here in our office, or maybe the groups of people with whom we speak at children, you know, at schools or, or churches or whatever. And when we deliver a message that stands on its own, uh, separate and apart from whatever post-nominal letters or accolades we have, then that message will resonate and people will grab to that, as opposed to the fleeting pleasure thing that, that I think is being sold to us um i hope it happens a little sooner than later because i'd like to be able to shield my children against the fall uh but i don't i don't know that we have control over that and i still have to have faith which i I guess is where spirituality comes in if you have faith in something bigger than you if that thing is also bigger than humanity then it will it will emerge also as humans try to figure it out because you know civilization didn't die it just keeps getting reconfigured you know the the roman empire may have crumbled but Romans didn't go away. They're still, they're still a country of Italy, you know, and they still have good foundational principles. It just they got rid of all the the decadence, I guess you could say, and a return to basic principles, and that's hard, uh, especially when we're
1: conditioned to want that. Yeah, I think uh, what people, old civilizations, like I'll even say something like this. I'm this a very anti, you know, the colonial people. People that talk about colonialism don't like to hear this, but even like in India, like, yeah, okay, British occupation was bad. It was horrific. You know, there was a lot of atrocities, but let's not fixate on that. They're out now. India has its own country, but as a result of this colonialism, pretty much every Indian person that's gone to primary education speaks English. They've modeled the common law system with some changes. The English common law system in India, the bureaucratic systems, pensions, and so forth. And most importantly, they looked at the UK and they thought, well, you know, meritocracy, maybe that is a good thing. We'll take some of that too. And now India is projected to be a global superpower because, you know, the internet usage is at something like 60% of the people, like 700 million people, have access to the internet today. It will be over 1 billion within 10 or 15 years, English speaking, understanding of meritocracy, and open source education is all the rage over there because they're like, well, you know, I could learn coding and stuff just within an internet access. I don't need to pay all this money to go to school. Not good for the schooling industry there, but it's great for children, right? And so you take all these things and you say, okay, yeah, some societies were bad in the past and now perhaps they're on the decline. A lot of people feel like the UK is on the decline. But their ideas paid dividends elsewhere, and I, I think people underestimate, you know, American ideals, which is you know, cl- basically European, classical European, with some um, Christian ideals. But they're kind of the same thing: that, you know, meritocracy, common law. Um, let's reward people who are good at stuff, but let's also have a heart and have some kind of like a means to help the less fortunate. And that's the prevailing system of the post-world order that you know a lot of com- countries have benefited. Even Nigeria is kind of building its kind of it's a capitalist powerhouse in Africa that's mm-hmm. taken many cues from the United States in England. So I think uh, even this sounds horrible, but like let's just say something bad happens in America, like fractures or there's a civil war or something. Um, Pax Americana maybe that goes away. That you know, the American experiment, so quote unquote, fails. Um, the concept of some of these individualistic American ideals that they'll find homes elsewhere, perhaps Latin America. You know, it's just the way it goes. And this is very like, I, I guess, I'm just kind of speculating and talking about like these, you know, the arcs of civilizations and, and so forth. But, you know, one thing that does come to mind is that when you look at, particularly in the United States, and you're talking about how to counsel people and and, and uh, perhaps you could inject some spirituality into that. I mean, I think for like thousands of years, like Christians were always the outcasts, right? You know, they were, you know, it wasn't until like basically the Crusades where there was a Pope and a sort of unified Christian European identity. They were always, they were oppressed by the Romans for over a thousand years. They had to find homes elsewhere. And there was a sort of, like, especially in the Christian homeschool community, there was a a sort of, I don't want to say insular, but just an understanding that the world is crazy. But we're going to try to give you our ideals and, and, and help you understand that there's a lot of poison out there, but this is what we believe. Technocrats hate that. You know, most societies hate that. They're like, what are you talking about? You should be with us. You should listen to the experts. These are your morals, not what you're, dad told you what's happening in your church that's bad and perhaps i think you know christianity has been so successful in the united states it's kind of it's it's gotten too uh incorporated into the monoculture maybe it should never have done that maybe it should have been this something that's more local and so if the monoculture goes to shit people could say yeah you know what we never had any stake in that anyway and so i think that's probably a good framework to look at things. Um, at least as an outsider, as, a, as someone who's not a Christian, that, that's the way I see it. Perhaps that's a good framework to look at it. Um, and that's kind of a, a similar framework which I uh, intend to use with my children, which is that, you know, well, it's crazy, it's chaotic, it is what it is, but we're going to equip you with certain ideals. We're going to educate you. We're going to leave some money for you. And we're going to make sure that you have everything you need to carve out a life for yourself. You know, we're, the last thing I want to tell them is that all this nonsense happening at the pop culture level, is something that they should incorporate. And so many parents, oh my God, that that get swept up in these social movements are just like throwing their kids out there into these waters, you know, and, and thinking that's a good thing that, It could be controlled, that this river will take them to a good place. You know, they have no idea. They have no idea. And so I'm not a therapist or anything, but if I had to give some advice, I'd be like, no, stick to your guns, stick to what you know, stick to your family, have faith. And if there's a storm, equip yourself to ride it out. Don't try to fight it at every level.
0: That's literally what I tell people is I use that analogy to the storm. I say you, you want to anchor yourself in something that is immutable and larger than you so that when the storms of life blow, you don't get tossed among the waves with it. You You know where to return to port. And I've been saying that more and more frequently as I see more and more parents and their children subsequently and the families coming in seeking guidance for all sorts of issues from anxiety to depression to identity disturbance and identity isn't always gender identity it's just you know I don't know what I want to do with my career or I don't I don't know what group I fit in at school and I go well what are your values and they they can't say it and I ask the parents what's your parenting philosophy and they look at me with the trout faced look and slightly crossed eyes I'm like what do you mean parenting philosophy and then we get to have a conversation about intentionality and moving ones self in a direction that means something based on a, a lens or a matrix or a rubric that they created that is theirs, that is unshakable, and they can return to. Now in the face of deconstructionists, and I like that you're saying deconstructionists, I've been saying postmodern, but nobody studies postmodernism, so I don't think they know what I'm saying. But the people who want to deconstruct never end up reconstructing anything in their in their wake, right? So so when the deconstructionists approach something that is well constructed they get very frustrated because they can't turn it, tear it down. And I think that's what I'm trying to encourage in people because if you look around, we'll just say loosely, broad society is full of deconstructionism. What do you stand for? And if they can't answer, well, they're going to be tossed among the waves and they will, they themselves will form an identity based on mere reflections of everything else around them. And those things are fleeting. The reflections are whatever that person is into at that moment. And if you're trying to, it's like chasing ghosts. If you're trying to chase these things down, you'll never know who you are. So I think that's the source of a lot of the separation in and among families and homes. It's the source of conflict in the job world, at, at the workplace. And if we can return to some of those basic principles and put people in charge of their own well-being, their own lives, their own medical treatments, Um, you know, it's keeping themselves broadly healthy, then they won't succumb to the tumult and the chaos that is, you know, seemingly everywhere these days. And, and that's not to say that it is, I don't know that it is. I think it's largely found on social media online. And I know that's not reality, but it does drive reality. Right. So we, we want to be mindful of that and return people to their, their anchoring principles. And if they never had any, because they were never given any, then by God, create some and, and announce it loudly. Yeah. Do you, um, are you first generation American or did your, were your parents from here too?
1: No, I was born in India.
0: You were born in India. Okay. So do you, do you, for those, for the listening audience who doesn't know, Dr. Medi is Indian. Do you go back much?
1: Uh, I've been back twice. Um, been since I was a teenager, so, you know, it's been a while.
0: Well, and having small children, I know, and COVID throws a wrench into that, but do do you plan on going back anytime soon with your family?
1: Oh, yeah, like, uh, oh, yeah, I, you know, when the girls are older and can maybe you know, appreciate things a little bit more, you know, I'll, I want to take them all sorts of places. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm due for a visit. Um, lots changing and India's kind of rapidly modernizing. And one of the interesting things about, you know, I guess, the Hindu roots all the way to the Indus Valley civilization 2500 B.C. or perhaps 3000 B.C. is that it's such a weird, slippery um, religion and and set of customs with not a single ordinating principle that it's really, really, really resistant to being overtaken, you know, because there's not like a few uh, edifices that you need to control or subvert. And then the whole thing topples, which unfortunately a lot of monotheistic religions, you know, you know, if You get if you get control of the church, if you get control of the, the religious texts and rewrite some core stories, you can flip the narrative, you know, in the minds of young people. And so, uh, Hinduism doesn't work like that. It's, people don't even know where to start. So it's extremely resistant to, you know, some of this outside cultural intrusion. And so, uh, as a result, you know, Indian civilization, despite being the the, the Indo Aryans, the, the the Mughals, the Ottomans, and various other uprisings, the British Raj. I mean, it's it's weathered. Even you know Alexander the Great, you know there was a conquest attempted there, and some people have gotten very far. I think the I think the Turks um, went far deep into as far as South India, but uh, after a while, people were. People rebuilt and Hinduism just kind of existed and sort of repopulated in a sense. And it changes, you know, it's not a a single, it's hard to even define it as a single religion, but it's one of the greatest strengths of the Indian subcontinent. So I always tell my wife, my nuclear option is, uh, okay, you know, I don't know what, you know, I think the United States is going to be fine, by the way. I'm not a doom and gloom guy, but if we have to leave, that's where we'll go. You know, I'll be like, we'll move to Mumbai or Delhi or something. And some of this area is like my cousin, both of my cousins over there, they work for Amazon. One of them works for some other tech company, but they were showing, I mean, I FaceTime with them and then they live in this part of Hyderabad in this like large apartment complex. And, and I was like, damn, they're living better than me. <laughs> I mean, it's like a very nice, beautiful, walkable area with coffee shops and um, lots of like, you know, uh, Mercedes and BMWs driving around. And I was like, where's this? Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm out here in Denver. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so I think um,
0: I was going to say, what's but, what's, the, what's the tax code like there? Do they do they take as much?
1: Uh, taxes are notoriously difficult to collect and administer. I mean, so uh, I don't know what's what's going on. It's it's less than the United States, uh, but there's just jaw dropping amounts of corruption. Hmm. Uh, but generally, if you're an expat. You know, you're beholden to American taxes. And I think, as far as India is concerned, if you're going to spend their money there, they're not going to tax you too much. So.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. On, on that on that note, I had the privilege because Naga Notes is truly international, which I'm very proud of. We actually have three Naga Notes podcasts there's this one, and then there's Naga Notes Africa and Naga Notes Cambodia. But because of the international flavor, I, I got the privilege of talking to uh, Jazdeep Mago, who is a psychologist over there. A couple of times, and comparing notes on what therapy or counseling looks like, it's pretty obvious that it's been infiltrated by the the European model, like ours has. But the support for people to get help is f- non-existent because it's just apparently it's not part of the culture. Very much like it is in Southeast Asia where Cambodia, you know, is and uh, Africa. They that the youth are now connected through the interwebs to the West and they're looking going, what is this emotional stuff? What is this psychology stuff? And they have no one to ask because the older generations yes. never never learned it. So I'm 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 really fascinated to see how like how people tend to their mental well being in different parts of the world, or don't. Maybe they just ignore it. Um not in the traditional sense of, you know, talk therapy and deep psychological concepts and um but she she said basically the same thing. It's like the corruption is really rampant, but uh, life is largely good. And you notice the disparity between the haves and have nots. Um, but it was it was just fascinating to me to compare notes. You know, I think in in America we think we're we're superior in all the ways because that's what we're taught through school and whatnot. And all it takes is a few conversations internationally to change the perspective and go. Maybe happiness isn't what I've been taught that it is. Maybe it's something different, or maybe it's all things. Yeah.
1: I think, it, I think that's exactly right. I, you know, I think a lot of these traditional societies, they, I don't want to say they didn't need therapy, but those roles were filled by elders, wise men, um, broader network of family. I'm not saying family is a good thing in terms of not therapy, but no yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes, but there be. were, <laughs> There were avenues, and they were plugged into like a broader system, you know, family structure, extended family structure. And so my cousins, um, they don't want to come here to the United States. They're like, yeah, you know, I have a pretty good life here, and and uh, I have pretty much all the amenities you have, um, all in terms of like tech and streaming and all that stuff. That you know, they've all got that dialed in. They went on vacation to. Where do they go they went to the maldives you know last and i was like wow that's like a dream vacation spot for me and so and they travel they take day trips all you know all over the place in india um they'll just travel by they'll go you know go for a weekend to Goa or something and they're just like well you know we make good money here things are trucking along fine and uh, most importantly here's the critical thing they're like i have 20 cousins here they'll say through my extended family and through my wife i have aunts and uncles. I have parents that I put up in an apartment that I bought for them. And I'm like, you can never take that with you. Even if you do successfully somehow bring a large board, it's just not the same. And so when I, I remember as a teenager, um, before my grandfather died on my mom's side, he, I was, you know, I was like, I don't know, I was like, like 13 or something. I'll spend all day with him. And he was retired. He had a pension. And he really wouldn't do much, you know, He'd just kind of hang out and, but he never needed a plan or an itinerary ever. You know, he'd be like, you know what, let's go, um, let's go visit my friend across town. So we'd go in a rickshaw, an auto rickshaw, go across town and knock on their door. This would be like, they'd be so happy to see us. They'd be like, hey, you're in the neighborhood. And so we sat there and then we ate and we ordered some food and, and, um, you know, got desserts and we spent like three or four hours there unannounced, completely unannounced. And then we went back home and then other times it'd be like, Oh, let's go see, uh, I don't know, take you to an IMAX movie or something like that. We do like the normal stuff, but the difference was the people, you know, the culture there is completely different. Maybe it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to a sort of like Germanic Puritan, like stay to a stick to a schedule and go to work and make this money and make things run efficiently. But, the fact that you could just like knock on someone's door who's like a relative or a friend, and it would kind of be rude for them to not like entertain you, but they would they would be like, "I'm so surprised! Like, I'm just sitting here doing nothing, and my friend showed up. Now I get to hang out with him for like three or four hours." You know, and his, 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 his you know grandson from America is here too. Great, you know, we could. It's just a it's a completely completely different lifestyle, and it's it's um, so my cousins still have access to that. And, um, I'm very proud to be in the United States and, you know, I'm I'm grateful to be here and raise a family here, but part of me wonders what I missed out on, you know,
0: I think the, uh, when you have that culture, like we have here, which is task oriented and, uh, completion oriented and output based when you're surprised with an interruption it can seem like it's an interference and then we don't want to welcome the people in for the the soft skills and the and the intangible qualities of spending time because we're so driven by the the tangible outputs that we're sacrificing to you know bring somebody in and eat with them for three hours and and i think that's very sad because that's it it goes along with the idea of losing things like art and music and all the the soft sciences, because we've lost the ability to wonder and dream and, and philosophize. So in some, in some regards, I'm glad for the lockdowns and I'm glad for the, it's very twisted for me to say this, but I'm the, the, uh, the mass resignation and and all that stuff, the great resignation, they called it. Because people are really evaluating their lives and saying, maybe I don't need to work 60 hours a week to generate a, a paycheck. Maybe I just need to go do something that I love and be satisfied with less. And I think that's a proper mindset if you're going to be mentally well and in harmony with the rest of the nature around you. And nature, by the way, is your your fellow human beings. Similarly, well, though, you're talking about your cousins not having a motivation to leave. I mean, people are talking about leaving Reno and and the the greater Nevada, or greater Northern Nevada area, because the policies are changing, politics are becoming a little more authoritarian, more restrictive. I just found out today that I now am required to do six hours of cultural edu- competence education biennially for my license. Which, in in summation with all the other mandated CE's, is approximately half of my forty that I am required. I'm like, is the state paying me to do this? Because what they're doing is they're eroding what I'd really like to learn, which is not Diversity, equity, inclusion, suicide prevention, ethics, and supervision, which is what is required of us. I'd rather spend it on learning cool new concepts. And that takes time and money. But the more that government seems to encroach here in the state of Nevada, the more people want to flee. And I go, I don't, I don't have a reason. All my I'm I'm rooted here. I'm I'm fifth generation Reno. My kids are sixth generation. Like we know everybody. Like, that's that's our our advantage. We love it here not to mention the climate and the culture and all the stuff you can do and how you're a, yep. you know, skipping a jump from major cities and that kind of thing. But I, I get that. And I think that simultaneously we can also continue working to improve by going, going backwards a little bit and restructuring values and reminding ourselves what really matters, which is the people, right. And connectivity.
1: And yep. modern society, people are considered an afterthought. Yeah. Like, Basically, if you get this cool job in New York, everyone's going to tell you, even the people around you will be like, yeah, go. It's a great opportunity. Your family, and your friends, of which you have many here to, you know, seek these new opportunities. And, and that's just expected of people, you know, and I'm guilty of it in a sense, obviously, you know, not by my own choice. But, you know, I'm part of that trend. And, you know, my wife, uh, she's from a small town in Texas. Uh, Clarksville Texas which is like a dying town unfortunately but she had some of that growing up she knew both of her grandparents her grandmothers on both sides lived within walking distance she knew everybody in town her grandma had a tab open for her at the one of the local stores so she'd go and just say show up with like a quarter and say I need to buy this the dude would just call Nana and be like, okay, this is what your granddaughter bought this time. Okay, put it on my tab. They all kind of knew each other, and she would be walk. if she would get out of the house, she'd be walking down Main Street looking to get in trouble as like a seven year old. Multiple people would stop her and be like, okay, does your dad know you're here? Yeah. And then she'd lie, obviously, as kids do. And then they'll drive home, they'll drive to the sheriff's house, you know, Mark Whitehouse was the sheriff of the town, and be like, uh, your daughter's walking down Main Street. <laughs> Good, go, <laughs> go, go get it. And so it's just like almost like almost a quaint sort of town that was, and they had some bit of industry there. I'm not really sure it was like a logging town, and they might have had a factory nearby. Logging is still there. Factory went away. Poverty increased. Drug use, and there was a mass exodus. Now the town is dead or dying. You know, with each tornado that rips through the place, it just never recovers. There's like men in houses and stuff, and, you know. It's really, really sad to see. You
0: know, yeah. well, and it, that becomes a punchline for a lot of these people who want to, you know, deconstruct everything, right? It's like they'll make they'll mock the the idyllic image yeah. you just painted because the to them success, which again is fleeting, uh, the accumulation of wealth and stuff is fleeting. The piece that accompanies something like that is not something that's within their grasp. I don't think because they've been too consumed with the chase and you think about phrases even like human resources humans are just a resource means of accomplishment for the corporate entity or whatever and i think that that embeds into our unconscious psyches so that we devalue ourselves too i'm just a human i'm just a cog in a machine and yeah you can be if you look at it from that perspective or you can be in the right place at the right time to deliver some care hope healing to whoever you cross whether it be in the coffee shop as a barista or in the hospital as a nurse or at Home Depot pointing tools out to people you can you can still have human impact if we remind ourselves that that's that's the purpose of life and not just to generate income and wealth and you know, I think about the instant gratification stuff I've made this point elsewhere but the terminology used for our technologies it's so self-centered i Phone, Facebook, MySpace, and then you know the the, uh, the the quick and and instant gratifying quality of Insta, Instagram, Twitter. It's like you just tweet, <laughs> uh, Snapchat. Yeah. Everything's like quick and all about you. And it's I think it's created this generational narcissism that I'm obviously pushing back against. And I think the idea is that if we can learn to tolerate distress, if we can learn to receive feedback from people, if we can learn to grow. And be happy with that instead of the tangible, countable, quantifiable, labelable externalities uh, we'll, we'll be a lot better off and we'll be a lot more harmonious.
1: Funny you say that. I mean, part of the reasons I'm like basically MIA from Twitter is like, I don't think it's useful on a day-to-day basis at all. It's, probably, it's harmful, actually. But on like a weekly or monthly basis, maybe you could figure out the next it's an early warning system of the the next crazy thing Mm. that's gonna happen. But you'll get alarm fatigue if you have that blaring every day. Yes. And so there's really no reason to go there every day. Like oh you know I haven't checked in in like I don't know like two weeks or whatever. But you know I'll go at you know I intend to go and just kind of scope out what's going on and then go back to maybe you know post and ghost. And Prior to Twitter, like I joined Twitter in 2022, like, uh, yeah, like mid-2022, or maybe it was like in the springtime. Prior to that, you know, prior to COVID, my life was great. I mean, I, you know, Donald Trump was president. I didn't like Trump, but he didn't do anything to me. What did he do to me? Nothing. he, He would do crazy stuff and give these insane interviews that were kind of entertaining. And then I'd go back to living my great life with, you know, just working as a hospitalist in Colorado, you know. Um it wasn't until COVID that you know things really, really took a turn and and I didn't know what to do. So I I went on Twitter to sort of find out what the fuck was happening, like what you know, why is society being turned upside down? And it did open my eyes and you know I I connected it with a lot of brilliant people, including yourself. Um, but at the same time, you have to, you know, you have to understand that it was designed by people to co-opt your dopamine pathway. And use that for profit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's
0: it. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I can't help but think that the group of people that we encountered in the circle in which we run on Twitter was largely a group of people. And this didn't. This is an organic thought happening right now. So forgive me if I'm uh, fumbling my words. I think we were all joined together through the same motives, which was to find out why everybody's losing their minds, but also because we were sort of backed into a corner and we turned and Mm -hmm. found each other. And I was like, okay, you're saying, right. And you're saying, okay, how are we so different? Apparently we weren't, uh, that we all landed in the same group thread or finding the same follower people. And we are vastly unique. As it turns out, there's a lot of people in the same circles in which we run that we never would have imagined interacting with different political stripes, different orthodoxies, different professions, uh, different lifestyles, different families of origin. And yet we forged pretty solid relationships. And I think the unfortunate part of that is the reason behind it was catastrophe. Everybody was lost. And so we found each other, which is pretty cool. And we formed this little team reality thing. And I know not everybody identifies with that, but it's like, all right, what's the commonality? We want to be anchored in logic, reason, truth, and respectful debate. And and it worked, yeah. man. Uh, it's It's been really great. I've got friends across the country, uh, across the world now because of that. Uh, and by the same token, I will never, ever, 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 ever recommend it to children because Jonathan Haidt's research has done, I'd love to get him on the show, just pick his brain, but he's done enough podcasts. We so don't need to regurgitate it. But his research has now. I think overwhelmingly shown the disastrous effects of children on children from social media exposure. And if we don't stop that, we're gonna be in big trouble. So as much as it you and I can say, well, it was edifying because we were sane going into Twitter, uh, children don't have the same grounding. They don't have the same filter system to figure out what's good and what's bad on all these social media platforms, particularly TikTok. TikTok's got a lot of really good stuff on it. And a lot of professionals have really impacted some, some people positively but not for children. Children don't know what's going on and if they don't have that structure because they can't because they're children, then they have no uh, anchor. They have no lens through which to filter the good from the bad.
1: Yeah, it's social media and Twitter. I think that's exactly right. I think it's like the speakeasy next to a red light district Mm. that maybe adults can go to and there's going to be a lot of weird people there. A lot of art house types and a lot of uh, extremely grungy, in-your-face stuff, and every city has this, you don't start off with those bars. Correct. You know? <laughs> Correct. You go in as an adult who is like, I'm not going to get into everything here. This is a little wild. But I'll go to the speakeasy and get that like bourbon you can't find anywhere else. And maybe I'll meet some like-minded people. But I'm not going to make this my home. I'm going to go there for right. a while, and I'm going to leave that takes a grounding and wherewithal that is um, emblematic of adulthood and kids absolutely don't have that I mean it, it goes without saying but one of the interesting things Jonathan Haidt was saying was this is the first generation that will have gone Gen Z is the first generation that will have gone through puberty online right and he doesn't say this explicitly but We know that the brain doesn't stop developing until, what, 24 in boys? Yeah, yeah. Like that, maybe a little bit earlier in uh, women. But this is the first generation that, since the age of like 13, 14, they were interacting more online than in person. And so from just a neurophysiological standpoint, they are divergent in ways that previous generations aren't. I know we always like to say, Oh, this generation is lazy and this and that. And every generation before us has said the same thing, but this time it might be true. And so, you know, I'm a millennial, I think, are you an elder millennial perhaps or I, yeah, gen I'm X somewhere
0: on the, on the edge of gen X and millennial 1978 okay. for whatever that's worth.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when I was, uh, I was born in 87, and I first got Facebook in college, right? And I was like, "Oh, this is cool. I guess I can you know, share pictures with people I already know." Mm-hmm. I never met anybody on Facebook. You meet people in real life, and then you Facebook friend friend them, right? Um, not anymore. And then that's how it was, and even like online dating and stuff, like it was a stigma. I met my wife in like 2014 or 2013 before then there were some there were a couple of online dating sites out there but people never really used them as a primary at least not in my circles I mean in fact it was kind of seen as you know in my bro group like why are you like trying to meet these girls online bro like go to the go to the bar and like go out there put yourself out there talk to them like what you're supposed to do you know when I lived in Austin during that time was like you had to have some social cloud you had to like have your boys you had to like have like an extended network, and you should go bar hopping together, and then you do stupid shit together. You know, you go to Lady Bird Lake and play ultimate frisbee, and you do stuff. That's how you meet people. And you got backup. You know, you're out there trying to like talk to a girl. You got backup. You got your boys. You know, they're gonna obviously you know, I want you to crash a bird, yeah. <laughs> 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 but that's part of the fun, right? But you know, you, st- you still do it as a group, and you know, the girl's gonna be like, you're not some lonely creep. You're here with your friends. Or they seem normal. You know, they seem nice. There's some girls among there too that are, yeah, there's some couples in your front. You know, that's cool. Let's talk and exchange numbers. And that's how, that's how it was. That's how, that's how I met girls back then. Now it's completely hundred percent online. Like, I just like, that has to be bad, you know?
0: I got it. And, um, I got to believe, I, you know, I don't know.
1: I think what will be interesting to millennials who saw the transition before their eyes, they're, they're going to watch Gen Z. And it's going to be instructive. And I already see this trend where, you know, my kids don't have access to a tablet. They watch, they watch like Bluey and Netflix shows on, on the TV. But uh, the tablet's like basically off limits unless we're on a road trip or something. You know,
0: yeah, I was there's ask it, you it, no you
1: trips. Yeah, so, um, and so since I've kind of unplugged and I've, I've had Twitter deleted on my phone for a while, but now completely basically unplugged like I even gotten went as far as getting an analog watch. Well, it's digital, but you know, what I mean? yeah, yeah. you know, it's not connected to the internet or something, something like that. And um, I'm actually thinking of getting ditching the iPhone and getting one of these like phones that iMessages and just like has a few apps. Mm-hmm. So I'm not constantly looking at it. And when they're teenagers, I want to normalize not having screens, talking to one another, reading a book if you're bored. You know, I'm I'm so glad that I live in Colorado where you can just go outside and and there's a creek by our house and a, and a trail. We could just you know go on hikes a few times a week just on that trail. There's a there's a playground there too, and so I think a lot of millennials will look at the craziness of Gen Z and be like, uh-uh, not my kids. I'm gonna recreate 1985.
0: Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And, I'm, and I- I'm, I'm, I'm having the same conversation with my wife because my kids are eight and just turned six yesterday. So eight and six. And, um, you know, when they, when we fly, they've, they're watching their, the tablet. Um, sometimes they have books, but it's, it's a lot of screen time and that's, that's fine. But, you know, I, I made the argument. I said, you know, the reason that Ethan is the younger one. He says the reason Ethan's throwing a fit is because he took the tablet away out of for the last three hours of the plane flight. And she says, "Well, you you're there listening to podcasts in your headphones." So I was like, "Yeah, but I already trained myself to be bored." He does He doesn't know how to do that yet. So we got to remove the stimulus. And to your point about the the parents of our generation, because I'll lump us in together because my wife is your age, um, the parents of our generation are starting to figure that out. So that. The seminars and the talks and the teachings that I give around the community, parents come up to me afterward and they ask, how do I do this when everybody else at school, you know, it's quote unquote everybody else at school, is going to pressure them into wanting the phone or the the device or the, the app. And so we do it just the same way that kids that we saw growing up did different things. So I usually point to the Mormons because it's you know easy to pick on the LDS and say, look, they, they did things differently. They didn't drink caffeinated beverages and they didn't dance chest to chest at the dances. And when they were teased for it, they said, that's not what we do in our family. That's not what we do in our religion. And everybody just accepted it because they were well anchored. And I think the same thing can happen with us. We just teach our kids to say, that's not what we do. And they stand confidently on that and the confidence then conveys a message to the the listening audience. Ooh, maybe maybe I'm missing something here cuz you're confident and I'm not so sure on my position. All I know is I'm doing what the crowd is doing. Yeah, you know, so if we can imbue that into our children, they will then emerge without I'm not going to say they won't suffer the peer pressure, but they can withstand it in such a way that honors and respects the the new culture that we've we've grown them into. And then later, if they want to, they can add the devices or the, the online accounts or whatever they want to, but we got to make sure that we form the foundation first. And that foundation includes distress tolerance. You know, if you talk to any developmental theorist, anybody who studies development of anything, whether it's seed growth or religion or, you know, psychology or whatever they say, the only way to grow is to be pushed into disequilibrium. So you can't grow if you're in equilibrium. You just stay where you are. The seed doesn't pop out and make a flower or a plant if it's not introduced to water and soil and so forth, right? So you have to push into disequilibrium. The problem is I think that we've inadvertently or in some cases purposely trained ourselves to avoid disequilibrium and avoid distress such that when distress confronts us, we shrink away. We don't step into it and say, oh, this is a growth opportunity. I'm going to be better on the other side of this. And I think we need to return our kids to that mentality which is go ahead and endeavor that difficult task. Go ahead and climb that rock. And if you fall, you're not going to fall so far that you end up, you know, busted open in the ER, uh, but you get scraped and scrapes can heal. And through that healing, that disequilibrium, you learn that on the other side of it, you survived and you learned something. Like maybe don't put your foot in that particular spot when you're climbing it the next time. So the more sports we can get them into, the more music, you know, stuff like that, that teaches them to tolerate frustration and push through and accomplish on the back end, I think the better off they'll be. And then they'll serve as models to their peers as opposed to the other way around where they're just caving into the, the pressure.
1: Yeah, no, I think, um, I think distress tolerance is, hard to do with just, you know, a single family. Cause one of the interesting things is, I mean, if you're going to tell your kids, we don't do that, we're different. You know, I don't, I also don't want them to feel like, well,
0: yeah, you can't be the only family. Every other
1: yeah. you can't, You're the only family. We're the only family that's weird. Instead, it's like, well, we don't do that. And other parents are modeling those things as well. Right. And so they'll start to be like, wait a minute. We're, if I'm weird and my parents are weird, then my whole church is weird. And maybe we're not weird. We're just different. And I kind of like that, that we're different. Right. And I think having this sort of network effect is why it's so important for families to have like-minded friends not superficial weird friends that are like, you know, most of the friend groups now are based on profession and what neighborhood you live in. And and it's almost a weird sort of status game that couples play with one another. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think it's really, really important to find people with similar values, you know, no matter how different they are otherwise and, um, link up with them. And, and I'm glad to have found some of that through my, um, you know, we sent our kids to a private school, and and uh, there's a lot of like-minded parents that it's just normal, you know, but definitely are, I mean, if you're going to a small private school, you're going to be wary of the world, as it is, kind of selects for that. But, um, so I'm glad to have, you know, found that group, but it's really, really hard in modern society to reconstitute that. Uh, if you're not, if your friend group is not from your small town Or from your, um, or you don't keep up with your actual immediate family. It's really, really hard to find those roots again, but it can be done. You know, I've seen it done, and we're actively doing it ourselves. You
0: know, one thing I know we've gone, you know, almost an hour and a half now, but I want to pick your brain because we've talked at length about this online and with our other peer colleagues is about uh, your profession and the overall. I guess, uh, erosion of people who want to participate in it. Um, my wife being a nurse and, you know, seeing her constantly getting called into extra shifts or incentive shifts and you're facing the same frustrations. I know a lot of your, your doc friends are short staffed everywhere. Um, I don't know if your wife's experiencing this in the speech path world, but we are in psychotherapy. A lot of people are either going into private practice and doing it part time or they're leaving the field altogether because they're just frustrated I don't care about the causalities necessarily because it's that's multifactorial, but what do you see as the solution to getting people back into the helping professions and making it honorable and noble again, and not just a money chase and not so you're just controlled by pharma or whatever it is? What are some solutions to this? Because we're all feeling it.
1: I think the simplest solution is to opt out of mainstream medicine. Hmm.
0: So keep practicing, but don't bill insurance, go the direct primary care route, that kind of thing.
1: Or even if you do bill insurance, but it's, um, it's one of those things where now there's an interesting underground doctor whisper network hmm. of physicians. And even at my, uh, at my gym, I met a pediatrician and, uh, we got to talking and within five minutes, I knew that he was not one. you know, he was pretty much against And Covidianism, he does not like the AAP. But you don't find people like that without really engaging. There's nothing, it's not like that's on his website, he doesn't have a Twitter account. And so I think if you find the right positions that are appropriately skeptical of the powers that be and view the medical industrial complex with a great deal of hesitancy and skepticism, I think we'll be better off. And so It's important to opt out in a meaningful way. And what I mean by that is not like necessarily go direct primary or go to naturopathic doctors or not saying all, you know, some naturopathic doctors are great, but like, I'm not saying you should completely bypass it, but you you really need to build these networks where um, patients are able to take better control of their own health and find the right physicians that are going to be a bulwark against the profession you know, and it's a bulwark against the predatory aspects of the medical industrial complex. And it really takes someone from the inside to protect you from what's in there. Yeah, What's in there is often very ugly. And so I think this generation of doctors, I I really hope that they're appropriately red pilled. They're not black pilled enough where they leave the profession, but they're red pilled enough where they understand how very dangerous this framework of you have pharma companies that are um in cahoots with these regulatory agencies, hospital systems, and the most important thing is to bring more patients in so you could do more stuff to them and make money. That's like the guiding light, whether or not they say it or not. I'm not saying they always behave in that way, but it's a common thread. Through every aspect of you know mainstream health in the United States. So I think um, you know you have to opt out, do your research, find the right doctor who will do the best for you, but also protect you against the system. You know, um, and a lot of doctors are very quick to, you know, admit patients, um, send them to refer them to many, many specialists and complicate their care. And I think we should practice a lot of, uh, a lot more restraint, you know, um, and there's no one way to like build that architecture. But I, I think one interesting thing, and this is a generational thing, hey, we can't really do this for uh, patients that are older and that are also, that are extremely plugged in. I, you know, I'm not going to say they're lost, but they're likely going to stay plugged in, right? Like the 60-year-old guy with like multiple specialists and all these medications, you're not going to be able to red pill this guy and like, you know, make him quote unquote healthy. But the younger generation that's that grew up listening to Peter Atia, Huberman and some of the health nuts out there understand that without ownership of your own health nothing good will ever happen and so some of the you know, longevity clinics and some of the Wu clinics that used to be very sketchy back in the day they they're pretty dialed in right now mm-hmm. even the trt clinics peptide clinics um these clinics that are sort of holistic exercise pt gym slash doctor's office in one where they go in and really get your vo2 max and do all these things and get you as strong as they can be Use medication sparingly, refer out sparingly. But, you know, this is true health maintenance. And if we could leverage that, I think we'll be much better for it. You know, we may have less hospitals, we may have like less super super specific qualified specialists. But let's be honest, those are that's a problem of a very small number of patients, which I'm not saying they shouldn't have access to that, but like should we really concentrate all of our resources on the most specialized type of care. No. Um, and I, I see it happening. I see the contours of it. I, I don't know which way it's going to go, but um, what it will take is the demoralization of mainstream medicine. It's going to cause more disaffection. More disaffection needs to happen. More opting out needs to happen. And hospitals need to realize that they need to change their business practices because you know people aren't going to want to come in otherwise.
0: I couldn't agree more, by the way, and I see the same parallels in my field where we're very quick to refer out if we're, quote unquote, not competent to treat the presenting um, symptom. And I go against that and I say, if somebody comes in with something that you don't think that you're experienced enough to deal with, you train up, you don't refer out because referring out can actually do harm because you've now shot the confidence of the person who maybe took a long time even to get to your door. And you say, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm unfamiliar with eating disorders. Go to the eating disorder clinic, which may or may not exist, by the way. Um, So I agree with you. Not to be all Johnny Raincloud, but I've experienced this my own life where when you buck against the orthodoxy, you threaten it. And when you threaten the entire system, the system gets very, very defensive. And so that brings me to this topic, which is licensing boards, because I think licensing boards are increasingly captured by the professional associations that we don't think have the patient's best interest in mind, but represent, um, you know, financial interests. And so are you worried, say, for example, having this conversation now that someone may get wind of this and try to sanction you for being out, we might even call it outspoken, but it sounds outspoken to those who have something to lose or uh, see their egos being threatened. Are you worried about that? And how much pull can that have in this uh, alternate universe that we're discussing? Because in my world, I can just let go of my license, charge a consultation fee for anybody who wants my time, and do it. You might not necessarily be able to do that because your license grants you access to things like script writing and equipment. Uh, so what, what, where, what do you think
1: about that? Well, I think um, it depends on the state. California has a couple of laws on the books that are very concerning. And they can sanction positions for, you know, if these laws pass for all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, literally what you say on Twitter or, or online, um, Colorado doesn't have that. Most states don't have that. Most licensing boards are actually normal. And if you look at board actions for like licensing, I used to be like, ah, oh, these damn medical boards. I hate them. And then I looked at like, okay, let's look at some of the recent sanctions of positions. And it's bad stuff. It's oh, like, yeah. Oh, it's like having an affair with a patient, prescribing all these opioids, or, or or just like very bad malpractice things. So I'm like, I'm not necessarily concerned that every state will get captured, especially red states or you know purple states, will get captured by you know some industry group to coerce physicians. But um, it's a possibility. You have to. We have to stay vigilant. You you never know. You can't be. So I think it's very important to. notify Congress people and be like, look, if you want independent doctors to move to your state, this can't happen in Colorado. This can't happen in Texas. Okay. We have to use our political power. If such a thing even exists anymore, which maybe it does in a fleeting way. I wonder. Yeah. And then the other thing is, um, I think uh, physicians are, so COVID caused a lot of people to retire. older physicians. Mm -hmm. It caused nurses to leave the profession. And millennials are now pushing 40. And at this point, there's no, Gen Z is a smaller generation. Um, you know, they can't really replace all these people. And so now, and we can't really depend on immigration anymore in the same way that you we know, used to, especially in highly regulated fields like, you know, medicine. Um, and so I think physician, there's going to be a labor shortage like none other, especially in rural hospitals. I get, some of the rates at these rural places it's insane. I you know headhunters and footers are texting me all the time. and it's just gonna worsen. And on, on some level, if a state medical board is implicated in um, causing doctors to leave a state, eventually Congress is going to get involved. You know, there's going to be a slew of lawsuits. It's going to go to the you know Supreme Court. thank God for Trump nominees and they'll eventually be put in their places. That might be what happens.
0: I guess I have a little more jaded view because I I chaired my licensing board and rewrote a number of our laws and regulations that govern us so that we can recruit more in because we were the only state out of all 50 that didn't allow our professional counselors, for example, to treat couples and families. And all of them outranked us in behavioral health care. And when I did so, I received tremendous blowback from the from the marriage and family therapists of which I am one who said, ah, you're, you're ruining the profession. You're going to cause harm to all these people because these lowly professional counselors are ill-equipped and under-trained to do what we do. Right. We think we're super special and there's, there's this weird purity of the blood thing that was going on too. And it was very odd. Um, and then they got, you know, they, they got changed and that was nice. And I thought we brought what was parody. Um, but they're still overly restrictive in who they license even though they're compelled by law to grant reciprocity to anybody who comes in with a valid corresponding and unrestricted license. Uh, and they're just, they're pawing into things they're not allowed to. And I don't have the same optimism, I guess that these individuals would be willing to jump onto a lawsuit because they're just trying to eke out their careers too. It's like, go along, to get along, keep your head down. And I hope maybe the medical profession, maybe it comes from the medical profession and not the mental health profession because you guys are more legitimized than we are. But, um, that that is true. I do share that that same outlook, and maybe maybe this has to happen. Maybe this is one of those really uncomfortable things that has to crack the system to show how bloated the system is with administration and not caregivers. Maybe that's what has to happen. I don't I don't want to see it happen for rurals for sure because we're facing the same. I mean, we're in, I'm in Nevada, like Nevada's dead last and everything. You don't want to be dead last, and so yeah. maybe, but it's going to be very uncomfortable for a really long time. However the optimism I do see is that it's going to create opportunity for people who want to do it the right way and maybe move the, the incentive structure around a little bit such that we are doing things to prevent illness instead of treat it. And maybe that looks more like less contacts with patients
1: instead of more. Yeah. I think the behavioral health field is, is I think it's its own kind of microcosm and, you know, you guys have been throughout history like uh, under attack by every new social movement. It seems like for whatever reason, psychologists are the first to, and the, and the therapists are the first to get captured or be bullied into following something. They seem to popular psychologists and public-facing people in that of that vein. For whatever reason, are important in creating consent and legitimizing the next crazy thing we've seen it with gender too right
0: yeah well they cherry so I, pick their uh, testimonies too
1: so I don't know if I have I'm, I, I'm not plugged in enough to your field to really comment I will say for the medical field there's a slew of critical access hospitals that if one goes away it's very very hard to restart hmm. this happened in Clarksville Texas the hospital closed 20 years ago There's they talk about rebuilding it and blah 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 it's not going to get built
0: that yeah. happened in Pahrump, Nevada, actually, too. Or uh, Tonopah. So, Tonopah, I think, is where it happened.
1: So I think some of these hospitals in medium medium sized cities, small cities, they're not like the greedy hospital systems and conglomerates that you see in these other places. They're the biggest employer, and they're very, very. They work very closely with the town. Like one of the places that I work at, the rural places that I go there a few times a month. Like the whole police force knows me. The you know, like the people on the city council. It's just like, you know, it's a small town. Everybody knows you. Mm -hmm. You know, It's not like hospital versus community. It's kind of very, um, it's a chimeric sort of um, relationship. If one of those hospitals is in danger of failing, they'll get the governor on the phone. They'll get the congressman on the phone. The CEO will talk to such and such, and they'll make it happen. You can't have a medium-sized town with some industry next to cornfields or next to oil fields or something like that go bust you can't mm. it's very bad politically and the way our electoral college is set up thank god that you know that we do have outsized power in rural areas so i think when you know the shit's going to hit the fan in california a lot and they just kind of sweep it under the rug and you know a lot of the big cities will just endure i mean look look at the state of san francisco and la it's, it's, it's not unbelievable good. yeah it's not good but on some level, if that creeps into, I guess, Heartland, Middle America, and these smaller towns, especially uh, outside of major cities but close enough, people will take notice. Congress will take notice, and this labor shortage of physicians—you know—I I don't think we've we've quite seen it yet. I, I think it's going to be bad. I don't know what's going to happen to address it. I, you know, I think a lot of mid-levels will have to step up, and, and physicians will have to um, supervise them and perhaps tell, you know, televisually telemed supervision or something to that effect, but uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. But I do know that medium-sized hospitals and the doctors that staff them are quite powerful. They're not like the morons on Twitter that have this veneer of power because they work for some hospital system, when in reality, they're just cogs. They're extremely constrained. There's nothing they can do to change anything, full stop, period. They're academic pawns, and they're among the least powerful physicians, but they project power because they say what, you know, the current narrative is. They'll, they'll tell the line. And, um, they'll talk about, you know, COVID or gender stuff or whatever. And they'll project this like sense of authority. But in reality, individually, they're very weak people. They have nothing. They step out of line once, they'll be eaten by their own. You've seen it happen before your eyes. It's true. Yep. And so it's very interesting how like social media portrays this, but the people that are actually, um, I guess, are able to move the lever are people that service these areas where if they go away, if these hospitals go away, there's nothing left, you know, and there's nothing to replace them. So the amount of noise that will be made to save the rural hospital, you know, uh, systems, I think will be sizable if it ever comes to that. And so I do hold out some hope in that sense. Um, And I think that as people leave cities, that's only going, that trend is only going to strengthen because, uh, you know, a lot of people are leaving cities. That's a good point. That's a good point. And a good what, point. I hadn't considered that. They're, they're not, they're not necessarily going to like very small towns where there's a critical access hospital, but they're going to medium-sized towns. They're going to, you know, smaller areas um, and they're filling out and, and, and when they move to these areas, doctors follow, population grows and, um, and, uh, you know, and that area becomes more powerful politically. Uh, they tend to be, they tend, there's just, a redshift that occurs, maybe the children will reverse that. Unfortunately, but um, I think um, so. I'm a little bit optimistic. I think I think leaving cities, fanning out, being more local, having a better relationship with a small hospital system instead of trying to deal with a big giant, you know, multi-state conglomerate is I think it's, I think it's probably going to be better for patient care. And then lastly, opting out altogether. I think in some sense.
0: So decentralization is what I'm hearing, not deconstruction. Yes,
1: yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, not deconstruction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Si, I sure appreciate your time. Um, this has been fruitful. I always enjoyed talking to people because I learn so much along the way, and that's why I continue to do this, even though it's slowed down considerably. <laughs> um, thank you a lot. And um, I guess I'll see you on, uh, on text thread, not on Twitter, because we're non-existent on Twitter anymore.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll pop in. But uh, no, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think this is like my second podcast. I haven't done one of these, Uh, but it's been fun. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope I didn't set the bar too high. Um, Cough, cough. (laughs) Humble (laughs) break. (laughs) Be on Joe Rogan next. That's right. I gotta gotta shoot him. I gotta shoot uh, Jordan Peterson and people an email too. Is I think I think Walk the Talk America. Belongs on that platform and deserves the exposure because nobody's doing guns and mental health in this country except for I think me.
1: It's weird. No, I think that's a great idea. You should uh,
0: reach out. Yeah. Well, uh, appreciate your time. This is Doctor Sai Medhi from Colorado, and um, as always, thanks for listening and downloading and sharing around. And on behalf of the Naga Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish, wish you all great mental wellness. Bye bye.